In case we've not met, my name is Kelly Scott, and I'm interim pastor for discipleship and a local mission partner of Trinity as a campus minister at the University of Virginia with a ministry called Athletes in Action. If you are new to Trinity, uh, I really want to add my welcome uh, to you. We are really glad that you are here. I'd love to meet you after the service uh, in the coffee area over there to your left. Uh, We are in the midst of a sermon series entitled Begging Jesus, and we are, are looking at various responses to Jesus or postures toward Jesus that we find in the Gospels. And as we do, we, we are asking ourselves, what is our posture toward Jesus? And if we are begging Jesus for something, what are we begging him for? These are very important questions because we believe that God has most fully revealed to us his glory and his love for us in the person of Jesus, by coming down from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. This morning's passage is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, or you can follow along in your order of worship. Now, John, chapter 6, is actually one of the longest chapters in the Bible. 71 verses. We're not going to read it all. Uh, I'm going to be focusing on the first half of the chapter, and even then, uh, I'll provide a summary of a portion of the first half of the chapter, about halfway through our reading. So please give your attention to God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii, or eight months' wages, worth of bread, would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. At this point, Jesus' disciples get into a boat. Uh, They begin to cross the Sea of Galilee. It's here we find the famous miracle of Jesus walking on the water, which, as you can imagine, absolutely terrified his disciples. But after they eventually take him into the boat, they arrive at a town called Capernaum. And the next day, some from the crowd catch up to him there. And that's where we pick up. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do 
to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. This is the word of the Lord. So, I like food. And when I say that, I I mean I really, really like it a lot. Now, I'm referring to the, the consumption aspect of food, not the preparation aspect, as I am sadly of little use in the kitchen past the breakfast hour. I can crank out some killer omelets, but otherwise I need to be given very specific, simple instruction in the kitchen. But because of my, my deep and abiding concern for the consumption of food, uh, I'm actually known among a couple of different groups of friends for my reliability in choosing great restaurants. Whenever we happen to be in a new place, whether it's for a wedding or for ministry or whatever it may be, my friends trust me to do the research and to shepherd them in the right direction in regard to restaurants. And I don't trust most of them to do so, so it works out, works out quite well. Now, one person I would trust with this is my wife, Nancy. And this summer, uh, Nancy and I were at a conference in Milwaukee, You may know that Milwaukee is not exactly known as the food capital of America, unless you're really into deep-fried cheese curds. But you know what? We found the good stuff. We found the good stuff. Whether it was a tiny, no-frills, Somalian restaurant serving up $10, amazing $10 plates of goat and rice and raisins and vegetables, or whether it was Uncle Wolfie's Breakfast Tavern, I kid you not, had to get over the name, but Uncle Wolfie's Breakfast Tavern, serving up the best breakfast burrito I have ever had, or a 70-year-old Italian grocery store and cafe doing what I imagine they have always done, I'm pretty sure that we found some of the best food in Milwaukee, at least on a budget. But the question I'm asking this morning is, did I meet God in those meals? I'm serious. Are those meals, and even the most routine, everyday meal, signs pointing me, pointing us to the power and beauty and goodness of God? In our passage this morning, Jesus is calling us to see God in our ordinary, everyday lives and to find our life in Him. And so my hope is that we we'll see how the bread in our passage is both an ordinary sign and a sign of the Savior. An ordinary sign and a sign of the Savior. And so first, an ordinary sign. Now to say that the bread in this passage is an ordinary sign is not to deny that the multiplication of bread and fish is absolutely extraordinary. But you see, Jesus' miracles are never for the purpose of just displaying the spectacular. They're, They're not magic tricks. Rather, almost all of his miracles are for the purpose of restoring the world and humanity to God's original design. Blindness to sight, disease to health, chaos to calm, 
demonic control to freedom, and in today's passage, emptiness to abundance. And note that what Jesus multiplies and abundantly provides is the most ordinary of foods. We're told small fish and bread. In fact, John specifies in in verses 19 and again in 13 that it was barley bread, the cheapest, most common bread of the day in the center of an everyday, ordinary Jewish meal. You see, it would be easy to to over-spiritualize this passage and to skip past the goodness of Jesus' physical provision of bread here. But realize that if we miss the goodness of Jesus' physical provision of bread, then we lose the deeper spiritual metaphor as well. In other words, if the bread itself is not good, then its power as a good metaphor for a deeper sustenance and satisfaction is gone. In fact, the ordinary bread is very good. We're told in verses 11 and 12 that the people ate and that they had their fill. Their physical hunger is well satisfied. That's not the problem. That's good. But when the crowd comes looking for Jesus on the other side of the lake, Jesus says to them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The problem is that they did not see the bread as a sign. The bread did not serve as a sign to them of something more, a sign to them that God is kind and good and that he is their provider and that he is actually with them. The bread for them was a dead end. It was a stopping point rather than a starting point. They were begging Jesus for another round of bread, but they missed the God who provided the bread. Listen how Alexander Schmemann, an Orthodox theologian, puts it in his little book, For the Life of the World. He says, All that exists is God's gift to man, and it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates, and in biblical language, this means that he makes all creation the signs and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The New Testament book of Romans in, in chapter 1, verse 20, confirms Shmaman's understanding when it says that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. God's majesty and beauty and glory may be clearly seen. There are signs everywhere. He has not hidden his glory. Schmemann is describing what I would call a life of joy. It's a life that sees signs pointing to God everywhere. It's a life of thanksgiving. It's a life of communing with God through what he has made. As we consider our posture toward God, I want to ask you, does this describe your life? Seeing and enjoying God through everyday meals and special meals, your morning toast and eggs, and your birthday dinner as well. Seeing and enjoying God by taking daily notice of his artistry and power displayed in the changing of the seasons. We sang about it earlier in multiple songs. The meadows, the woodlands, they all point to the glory of God. Seeing and enjoying God 
and who God is, and this is especially convicting, through the people he's placed around us. The pinnacle of his creation, made in his image and likeness, our family members, co-workers, neighbors, and friends, are we continually looking for God's imprint, the imprint of God's glory on them? Are you seeing and enjoying God's creativity and beauty and intelligence reflected in the music that you play and listen to, the sports that you play and watch, the work that you do, the subjects that you study in school? Do these lead you to everyday worship and joy, or are they an end in themselves? Are they a stopping point rather than a starting point to see the God who made them? And I want you to know that as I ask you these questions, I I am the worst of offenders, Far too often, I do not see signs as I go through my day. I don't see them pointing to God at all. It's very easy for me to rush past them. Growing up near Washington, D.C., I, I uh, contracted a disease that, that causes me to want to get places faster than anyone else. <laughs> I can tell you exactly which lane to be in at every light on 29. If you don't want to sit and wait, and I don't need to tell half of you because you already know, and the other half of you don't care. (laughs) But what this means is that I'm too often concerned with getting things done, even good things done, to stop and to notice the majesty and splendor of God and to worship him and give him thanks through what he has made. On the other hand, sometimes I do slow down. Sometimes I do slow down and I see food, I see sport. I I listen to music. I see my wife. I see my kids. But rather than seeing them as gifts from God that leads to a deep sense of gratitude and joy, I see them as ends in themselves. And because of that, I, I, I have to expect too much of them. They are made to bear the weight of my expectations. Schmemann goes on to say this, man has loved the world but as an end in itself and not as transparent to God. He has done it so consistently that it has become something that is in the air. It seems natural for man to experience the world as opaque and not shot through with the presence of God. And again, the the book of Romans confirms his understanding when a few verses later in Romans 1, it says that, that we exchange the glory of God for the created things themselves. We neither glorify him as God nor give thanks to him because what he has made has become opaque to us and not transparent to God. This exchange is precisely what we see the crowds doing in our passage. Like us, they fail to see God in the bread, in the ordinary, and they worship the created thing, the bread filling their stomachs instead of the creator. You see, by separating the world from God, they're separating themselves from the God who's made himself known through the world. This is why Jesus came. Secondly, the bread in our passage is a sign of the Savior, a sign of the Savior. The crowds are indeed looking for a Savior, aren't they? The the question is, what kind of Savior are they looking for? We're going to look at three places in our passage where we see that they have a diminished view of the Savior that they need. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself the question, what kind of Savior have I been looking for recently? 
So here we go. Stick with me. Three places. First, in verses 14 and 15, with stomachs full of bread, the people say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They love this guy. And they're ready to stir up a rebellion. And, re- and we read in verse 15, they're ready to take him for- by force to make him king. They're thinking, surely this man can lead us to victory over Rome. Surely this man can give us the political and material stability that we long for. Just as they'll later say at the end of the passage, sir, give us this bread always. They're looking for a Savior who will just keep meeting their material needs alone. Second place, we see their diminished view of the Savior later when they meet Jesus on the other side of the lake and he calls them to believe in him. They say to Jesus in in verse 30, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The people are referring to to when God rescued his chosen people, the nation of Israel from Egypt, and and Moses was leading them through the wilderness to the promised land, and and they didn't have anything to eat. And so each morning, the Lord, in in response to their cries, uh, provided this flaky bread-like substance that appeared on the ground each morning as the dew evaporated. And they gathered it up each day and were told that it, that it tasted like wafers made with honey. You see, the crowd sees Moses in the same crude way that they see Jesus, primarily as a miracle-working bread dispenser. And they are trying to tempt Jesus to do another sign and, and produce more bread by comparing him with Moses. They're essentially saying, prove to us that you were as good as Moses. How often do we demand God prove his goodness to us? But of course, Jesus refuses to to play into their hands because he wants them to see that that Moses and the manna were also signs pointing to him. In fact, there would have been no exodus or manna in the wilderness apart from what was at the time God's future mercy to them in Christ. The Apostle Paul actually picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says that Jesus was their true spiritual food and drink in the wilderness. The promise of Christ and his future sacrifice for their sins was the entire basis for the mercy that they received in Egypt and in the wilderness. They had the same Savior we do. He was their true bread from heaven as well. Well, given the, the, the crowd's worldly view of bread from heaven, it's not so surprising that they also have a worldly view of attaining this bread. The third place we see this diminished view of a Savior is in verse 27 when Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The people have a a worldly, commercial, transactional view of attaining God's blessing. What works must we do to do the works of God? How many times can you fit do and works into the same sentence, right? Friends, how often do we fall in to this mindset in which 
Maybe it's reading scripture or avoiding a, a certain sin or giving money or giving of our time to serve actually becomes a means for us in our minds of attaining God's blessing. A commercial transaction with God as if the blessing of God could be bought. Jesus is calling us into something so much better here. He's calling us into a relationship. Think about it. What is every good relationship in this world built upon? On tallies of good deeds and paybacks and records of wrong? Or on trust? Of course, on trust. And Jesus says in verse 29 that there's only one work required to receive him, the bread of life. And that is to believe in him. To lay down our silly transactional games with God and to actually trust him with our lives. See, Jesus' abundant provision of bread is a sign that he is worthy of that trust, a sign of the true Savior, a sign that he is the one who is our provider, our sustainer, our supply, the one who sees us, the one who knows our needs and meets our needs and cares for us, the one who delights in not only satisfying our stomachs, but satisfying our souls with his love. He is inviting the disciples, the crowds, and he's inviting us to feed on him the bread of life that our souls will not go hungry. But what do we do about the countless times that, that we have failed to see and worship God in the ordinary and that we continue to fail to see and worship God in our ordinary, everyday lives. The countless times that we have exchanged the glory of God and worship created things, disconnecting the world and therefore ourselves from God. What do we do about that? Well, we actually can't do anything to make it right with God. But think about what Jesus did. He left the glory of heaven and he became ordinary for us. As the book of Hebrews says, being made like us in every way, yet without sin. He lived the life of thanksgiving and worship and fullness of joy in the ordinary that we were created to live. And he did that in our place. And then he willingly took our disconnection from God in our place on the cross. The true bread of heaven given for us. So that if we respond to Jesus' call to believe in him, we are united to him by faith. It means that we are not only united to him in his death, but we are also united to him in his resurrection to eternal life with God. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As I thought about uh, today's passage this week, I, I really wanted to use our, our huge window uh, as an illustration, uh, because if you have a huge window in your sanctuary, you have to take advantage of it sometimes, just not too early in the service so people don't track birds the entire service. But when we look out a window, uh, unless you're in window sales, the point is not to see the window itself. Right? The point is to see beyond the window. This is what Shemaimah was saying the whole world is supposed to be. The whole world is supposed to be like this window, a window to the glory and love of God. 
We all know it's absurd to think that the point of a window is just to see the window itself and to not see beyond it. But this is precisely what we've done with the world that was created to be a window to God. But then I thought, you know, uh, I I actually can't use this window uh, because we have a huge cross built into it. And you can't tell people not to look at the cross in a sermon. Right? But then I realized, you know what? No. It's actually perfect. Because what Jesus did was he came and he entered in to the window that is our world. He entered into the darkness of our opaque understanding of the world, especially on the cross, taking that darkness on himself in order to open up the whole world, give us back the whole world that we might see God in it. It's actually through the cross that the whole world is given back to us again and becomes once again a sign of the glory of God. <clears throat> I'm really tempted to end there, but, but someone might say, you know what? Uh, I like this idea uh, of seeing Jesus in, the ordinary, in our ordinary everyday lives and worshiping and enjoying him in all things. I can see that, that we were made for it. We know we were made for it. Our hearts know we were made to enjoy God in all things, but how do we start to do that? As Presbyterians, we believe that God's actually given us uh, what we call means of grace, means of of, of receiving his grace to help us to do just that. So I want to share one verse to help us apply what I've been talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So how do we see Jesus and enjoy him in all things? Well, first, we need to have our minds continually renewed by the word of God in order for us to see the world rightly. Being in the word of God continually reminds us of what is true about ourselves and the world. And if you're like me, you need to be reminded every single day. And second, 1 Timothy says, by prayer, as we go through our days And we see the world through prayer. We receive the world from God as thanksgiving, and we ask him to enable us to and empower us to to honor him with the gifts that he's given us. And so we see that through the word of God and prayer, God's good gifts become consecrated or holy, as it says. They become offerings back to him. The word of God and prayer. At the beginning of the passage, uh, when the disciples came to Jesus, uh, and, and, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to serve all the people, right? We're told that Jesus tested them. And we find out that, that they were only thinking in human terms. Eight months' wages couldn't buy enough for people to even have a bite. Like we often do, the, the disciples were trying to serve in their own strength. Prayer and humble reliance on God were not in the picture. But what Jesus shows them and he shows us in this passage is that he has all the compassion, all the strength that we need to serve him. And more. Twelve basketfuls more, in fact. Enough for all twelve tribes of Israel, all the people of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, 
for the goodness that you pour out on us each day. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would have eyes uh, to see your goodness, that we would enjoy you and worship you in the ordinary, in the everyday. And we thank you that we have a great Savior who came and did just that. We thank you we have a great Savior who took our failures, who took our sin, who took our idols, took the guilt of all of that to the cross, that we could be brought back to life with you, God. Oh, Jesus, would you be our bread each day? In your name we pray, amen.